Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Amber Phillips. Amber analyzes politics for the Washington Post's nonpartisan politics blog and authors the Five Minute Fix newsletter, a rundown of the day's biggest political news. You can find her on Twitter at ByAmberPhillips. Welcome, Amber. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for having me. You are truly an indispensable resource. I've directed friends, family, and students to your excellent explainers so many times. I want to start with a question about journalism in 2020. And you write nonpartisan pieces. And this is going to sound like a partisan statement because you're fact-checking, because you're writing about reality. Sometimes it reads as partisan. How do you explain to people the difference between reporting facts and partisan reporting? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Let me start with what an analyst is, which is what I do. Reporters report the what, what happened. Uh, Today, Mitch McConnell said Joe Biden is president-elect. I'm a political analyst, which means I try to analyze or contextualize or explain the why or the how. Why does that matter? How did that happen? What does that mean? As an analyst, we have more freedom to call things as we see it, rather than reporters who report the facts and let readers read between the lines. And they're certainly partisan analysts. You see them on cable news a lot, for example. But if I didn't analyze both parties with an equal eye, I'd lose my job. And so to your to the point of your question, where that gets accused of partisanship is when we write about how something is going poorly for a particular party. Like that's inherently negative coverage. If, for example, polls say Republicans are getting blamed for a government shutdown, writing that sounds <laughs> quite critical of Republicans, um, but it doesn't mean we're advocating for Democrats, for example, whereas partisan reporting would be advocating for one side or another, and I would hesitate to even call that reporting. You know, I'm so glad that you said that because I feel like we have a huge media literacy problem in our country, and there's a difference between reporters and analysts and nonpartisan analysts and partisan analysts and people who comment, and we tend to kind of just put people in one big bucket if they work for an outlet like the Washington Post or even if they're on TV, and of course, everybody fills different roles here. And so with your role in mind, you've written and we've talked about President Trump's post-election litigation strategy. Can I ask you, how would you best describe that litigation strategy? You know, I would describe it as Hail Mary attempts based on hearsay rather than actual evidence. Uh, But as one reader pointed out to me when I used that term, Hail Mary passes are sometimes caught, and that has not been the case, as you and I have talked about, and you've helped me understand, with his legal strategy. Do we know why? I mean, what's behind, you know, typically, so I try and train law students to be good lawyers, and I would tell them, you know what I would go ahead and not do? A Hail Mary pass, and then on top of that, another Hail Mary pass. So what do we think might be really behind this? Because it can't be the thought that you're really going to win in court. Right. We don't know for sure. I'm not sure we'll ever know for sure what's driven the president and his allies to drive at this so hard and, and erode their credibility in court. But there are a few options. Like one is that the president actually believed there was widespread fraud, 
the White House team at the Washington Post, which is fantastic, reported that after he lost, he waffled back and forth on whether to accept it. Like he truly thought he was going to win. And so maybe for the early court cases, he just like let himself believe there was somehow widespread fraud despite no evidence of it and that his lawyers were going to somehow prove it. But the other option that I think is more likely is he wanted to try to create doubt about how this election was conducted in a way that allowed him to save face from the fact that he's now one-term president. Again, my colleagues who know him better, have followed him for four years, have written about how he just hates being called a loser. It's just the number one thing to push his button. And this loss has been obviously particularly painful for him. So it seems like he tried to wield the courts as this tool to blur the line between what happened and what he wanted to happen. Yeah, so wanting to save face is one thing, but using the levers of power to try and undermine democracy, and this is just me speaking, seems to me to be quite another. And personally wanting to save space, save face is one thing, but he's not alone. I mean, right. the majority of the Republican establishment has gone along with him. You and I talked about this uh, for a story that you wrote, but what do we make of the fact that over 120 elected Republicans, people who are sent to the nation's capital to represent us, have signed on to a lawsuit with truly no legal basis. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah, yeah. The lawsuit, the Texas one you're talking about was blatantly baseless, as you have explained to me. And, you know, we should add that, like, my colleague looked at how many Trump appointed federal judges have said, no way, this, all of this that you're trying to claim in various states or at the Supreme Court doesn't work. It's a total of eight, including three at the Supreme Court. So these Republican lawmakers are joining on to this, onto Trump's efforts to undermine the election, despite the fact that the facts don't show it and the courts don't show it and Republican Trump appointees don't show it. So we, again, I can't specifically answer that question because there have been as many different reasons as there are lawmakers for why they wanted to sign on. Maybe some truly believed it, but there was one constant, which is like this lawsuit wasn't going to go anywhere. And I think that raises a very fair question for us to ask is whether some saw this as low risk to sign on. They knew it wouldn't go anywhere, but it would help engender Trump's loyalty or more importantly, the loyalty of his base. And that is, yes, a remarkably cynical way to look at this moment in history. But one Republican, just a rank and file mission, Michigander named Paul Mitchell, actually just left the party over this specifically because he said that's exactly what his leaders were doing. They were letting raw political calculations. How can I appease Trump and his voters? Oh, I'll sign on to this lawsuit. It's not going to go anywhere. All the better. Um, decide how they weighed in on election fraud and how they propagated that. And so it sounds remarkably cynical, but you have a number of Republicans even up in arms about the fact that this happened. If I'm not wrong, it is, you just said he's leaving the party. And so maybe the risk is lower for him, but you said the words low risk. And it seems to me that low risk in one way, right? Low risk may be in the very short term, but incredibly high risk and high stakes for our country, at least in the medium and long term, when you have, we're supposed to be serious people who have one of the nation's most powerful jobs being an elected representative, either in the House or in the Senate, 
um, supporting what I think you, you know, best describe it as a, as a cynical view. And, and I, I'm not saying you're not right. I think that's really helpful analysis. Now, we're not done yet. We're recording this conversation the day after the Electoral College votes. There's one more step before Inauguration Day, January 6th, mm-hmm. when Congress uh, counts and certifies the results. Can you talk a little bit about what we might expect to see? Yeah. So we're probably going to see one final challenge, like you said, to those results. And this is a little corner of the law that has been election law that's been used more and more frequently by lawmakers kind of in protest of the fact that their side lost. So what's going to happen and what's different this time about it are two things. A one or two House Republicans, as the vice president Pence, they're all together in a joint session and he starts counting the states alphabetically. You know, Alabama gives how many electoral votes for Trump? Okay. Uh, and, and people can object to that. And so what's going to happen is one or two Republican lawmakers in the House say they're going to try to object to it. But the law says you need a senator to sign on as well. So far, we don't have that, but there are a couple options of people who might sign on. So let's say you get at least one House lawmaker and one senator. They sign on. They they give a challenge over to the vice president. It's like literally a slip of paper. That requires, according to the law, for both chambers to split up, senators to walk down the hall to the Senate. I don't know how they're doing this in a pandemic, by the way. And then to um, vote whether they think those challenges are legitimate. Uh, people who know this election law have explained to me the Electoral Count Act of like the 1880s, I forget the exact year, have explained to me that, oh, what was it? 1887, yes. Thank you, yeah, 1887. So the Electoral Count Act, what they've explained to me is like, in order for a challenge to get any traction whatsoever, you need states to have been, have given Congress two different sets of electors, like the states can't decide, and that's what Congress is debating. That hasn't happened. All the states, as we saw yesterday, all agree on electors. The governor certified it. Top election officials certified it. The Electoral College voted on it. There is no issue. There's literally no issue. So what's probably going to happen is like it's just going to delay the inevitable, which is Congress certifying Biden's results for a couple hours on January 6th. Delay the inevitable seems to me the catchphrase for all of this post-election wrangling, both legal and political. And I have one more question for you, and then we'll end with the three questions that I ask of all of our guests. And the, the last question is based on an article that you wrote just this morning where you talked about Uh, Vice President, excuse me, President-elect Biden's approach to leading after such a historically divisive election. And how would you characterize his approach and how it might, frankly, differ from some Democrats? Yeah, this is really interesting to me. It's a trend I've seen since he got announced, uh, you know, President-elect, which is a glass half full look at everything that you and I just talked about, which is pretty dark stuff, right? Like, not normal in electoral right. politics in America. And and Biden has, I don't want to say brushed it off because he's he has very much criticized Trump. And last night he gave a victory speech after winning the Electoral College, uh, you know, the Republicans who signed on to this Texas lawsuit. So he's been very critical of them, but he's also given them like 
like a pass. You know, he said, oh, I understand the situation they find themselves in. These Republicans who won't acknowledge my win, they totally will acknowledge my win. I'm quoting him at different times since he won the election. You know, and last night he said, you know, uh, what's the best quote from this? We know that nothing, not even a pandemic or abuse of power can extinguish that flame of democracy. It's just a, it's just a remarkably like optimistic way of looking at things. And I came to the conclusion it was a pragmatic way because he has to work with Republican lawmakers next year, especially if they keep control of the Senate after two Georgia Senate runoffs in January. We hope we'll have conversations with you to see if this pragmatic approach pays off. So as listeners of the podcast know, I always end by asking my guests the same three questions because we learned a lot from you, learning a little bit more about you in a lightning round. Number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I'm glad you gave me a heads up so I wasn't just like, uh, Beyonce. (laughs) There's no wrong answers except maybe that one. Maybe that one. Otherwise. (laughs) JFK. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'd probably choose one of my favorite authors, James Michener. It sounds nerdy, but he's this historical fiction author. And the book I love, he wrote The Drifters, was like actual fiction where a bunch of Vietnam era hippies travel around the world and ignore their responsibilities and I don't know, it made me want to travel. So I actually ended up visiting the hotel in Singapore where he wrote a lot of that book. I love that. Um, Speaking of traveling, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? So I'm pregnant right now. And this is like not even a meal, but I, I drink hot chocolate like every hour. I know that's so weird, but, but excuse me, listeners, I'm pregnant and I just have this weird craving for hot chocolate. No excuses needed. (laughs) And finally, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Uh, Okay, the ability to write while I sleep, because then you could (laughs) nap and do all your work. It seems to me from the outside that that actually is what you do. (laughs) Amber Phillips, thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, thanks for having me on. This is a pleasure. And I learned so much from you when you allow me to interview you. And so thank you for that and all your knowledge. Truly anytime. You can find Amber on Twitter at by Amber Phillips, all one word, me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod. Thank you to the listeners for all of your support and for joining us in these conversations. And we will see you next time.